This is Dr. Michael Bricky with Ageless Lifestyles, cutting-edge thinking for being youthful at every age. On each program, I interview experts on what it takes to live longer, healthier, and happier. Today's show is Mental Health and Aging with geriatric psychiatrist Dr. Marka Granen, author of How We Age, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Growing Old. Dr. Gronin, welcome. Thank you so much. You're a big fan of stage theorists. And of course, Freud, uh, with his oral anal phallic stages, was one of the first psychological stage theorists. You were especially impressed with neo-Freudian psychiatrist Eric Erickson. What drew you to Erickson's approach? I had the extraordinary opportunity when I was a sophomore in college to actually participate in a small seminar with Eric and Joan Erickson. And in, in one chapter of the book, I talk all about this experience and his aging process and my perspective at the time when I really didn't have a, a good understanding of some of the changes that people go through, especially with memory, and how I look at it from my current perspective as a geriatric psychiatrist. But it was clear I was uh, incredibly drawn to his theories and to his approaches, in particular his theory of the eight stages of man. I think what mostly impressed me was how he was able to talk about the balance in each stage of life, that we face challenges and we sometimes undergo crises, but there's always the potential for something better to emerge out of those experiences. And this really parallels my viewpoints on the aging process, that if we only look at the downside or if we only look at the potential, we're not truly having an honest and balanced approach. And so it's clear to me that when I first encountered Erickson as as an individual and studied his theory, that I thought it provided one of the most honest and descriptive approaches to what the life cycle is like. And when I studied psychology and psychiatry, it was clear to me that so many of the theorists that I thought had the most relevant things to say about the life cycle all touched down with Erickson in terms of the basis for their theories. So there was far more optimism as well as more nuance and more balance to it. Sure. What was so extraordinary about Erickson was that he was schooled in a very strict Freudian model, which looked at the stages in childhood as the key determinants of, of how our life will progress. Thinking of Wordsworth's famous expression, how the child is, is a father to the man, that what's set in childhood really sets our life in motion, and there's not potential for fundamental change as we get older. Now, psychoanalytic thinking has evolved considerably since then, but in, in the 50s, Erickson that you can't simply look at that perspective. You have to consider the role of the social world. You have to consider the role of the, of the historical moment and, and put this together. And when we think about aging, to me, this is a very similar approach. You, you can't look at an older person in isolation. If you're only focusing on the physical ailments that they're facing or a loss that they've undergone or the changes in their appearance, you're only seeing one dimension of aging. And in a very practical way, when we have 
older individuals that we encounter, whether it's a loved one or a friend or simply in, in work, sometimes our prejudices get in the way, and we look at people in a very one-dimensional way. And this misses so much of not only the aging process itself, but we lose opportunities to, to understand and connect with people. And so this is why Erickson played such a central role in my book, because even more so than, than the details of his theory, his overall approach to thinking about life and our relationships and, and, and how we grow and develop is such a, a open and fundamental approach that I had to integrate it in, into what I wrote about in the book. So it's a holistic mindset, and he also placed more emphasis on some of the older ages, which many theorists tend to ignore. And to illustrate his eighth stage, which is integrity versus despair, could you tell us the story of Emma? Sure. According to Erickson's theory, each stage presents us with certain challenges that are unique to that stage. And, and the way that we either successfully or unsuccessfully navigate each stage carries into subsequent stages. So by the end of life, we carry with us all of the experiences and influence, influences that we faced across a lifespan. And Erickson thought that the key task in late life is to be able to develop a sense of integrity or wholeness or meaning to our life versus feeling despair over what we've, we've experienced. This patient, Emma, that I talk about in, in the end of the book, ha had faced a very tragic life. She was a young mother in Czechoslovakia prior to the Second World War. She had three children at the time and then had a fourth one right on the eve of war. Because she and her husband were Jewish, when the Nazis invaded Czechoslovakia, they, they escaped to Belgium and hoped to survive there, or in the very least, hoped that the children could somehow survive. And so they placed the children in an orphan, either an orphanage or convent or, or some, some form of what they hoped would be a safe living situation during the war. Both of them ended up being arrested and taken away. Her husband was killed during the war in a concentration camp. She survived Auschwitz, a death march, a number of other camps. And by the end of the war, made it back in, in just a terrible state to find her children. Uh, unfortunately, she discovered that they had been taken away, sent on a cattle car to the certain death at, at a concentration camp. What she discovered over the next year was that, through help of the Red Cross, her youngest son had, had survived miraculously. That when the children were put on a train to be taken away, some members of the underground had run up to the train and they pulled out seven small children one of whom was her youngest son, who at the time was three. So suddenly she meets a seven-year-old son, and she describes not being prepared as a mother. She, feel, she felt guilty that she had not been a good mother to him. And so when I'm seeing her now in her late 90s, and uh, the story takes place when she was 98, she's not only still mourning the loss of her children, but she's also beating herself with guilt over how she treated her one surviving son. So if we put her in the context of Erickson's theory, she had a deep sense of despair. And looking back on her life, she could only see failure and tragedy and loss. And came to me saying, 
it's time for me to die. There's nothing more you can do for me. I think she, in some ways, illustrates the situation that some older individuals find themselves in, that they're so overwhelmed with some challenge that they can't see a way out. And indeed, family and doctors are often not far behind, and it's easy for us to throw up our hands and say there's nothing we can do. And yet, as I talk about in the chapter, some really amazing things happen to her that help to change her life for the better and help her to have a, a greater sense of integrity, limited to a large extent. But she was able to find this basically through kindness to other people. She had a, a sister-in-law who suddenly appeared on campus, and she had to be a caregiver for her. And her suicidal thinking slipped away, and she became less depressed because she had a role. She Someone needed her. And I write about how this, these are some of the surprises and gifts of the life cycle. You never know who will come along to help transform uh, a crisis we may be, be facing. And even at 98, this is what happened for Emma. And the way I tend to think of that, and I see a lot of people in nursing homes that are giving up, is they no longer have a sense of purpose. And the sister-in-law who needed help with translation and, and getting around gave her a sense of purpose and opened up her life again. And in a very short period of time when she had that purpose and she had the ability to give back to someone, it transformed her. And one of the points I make in the section of the book on memory is that even when we face memory loss, even when we face physical disability, we retain the ability not only to experience kindness, but to give to others. And this can be incredibly meaningful for someone, even someone who has memory loss, who, who lives in the moment, even someone who doesn't have a good sense any longer for their past history, whether it's a day ago or, or a decade ago, in the moment to be able to experience that or give that kindness is a strength we retain to the very end. And it's a point I make that if we miss that, if we don't see that capacity, we lose an opportunity to, to maintain vital connections to people. You often use reminiscence books to help with that process as well. For those who haven't experience memory loss, delving into one's past memories has the potential to be healing, to allow a person to have a sense for the completeness of their life cycle, and to think about how they want to take strengths and experiences from the past and apply it currently, or teach young people. And I focus in particular on this uh, amazing book written by Sophie Freud, the one of the granddaughters mm -hmm. of Sigmund Freud. And she wrote a memoir about her mother, using her mother's words and laying on her own memories. The book is called In the Shadow of the Freud Family. And I was moved by how she's able to, in her own age, old age, she's in her 80s now, to have a mission to write about some very painful life experiences, both in terms of her mother's life and, and her own. And yet, for her, this gave her a, a, a mission and it gave her a greater understanding for her mother. And actually, I write about in the book how I went to meet with Sophie Freud and spend time with her and get to know her and understand where this book came from and how the, this powerful uh, aspect of life review. The, the practical point for everyone listening would be one of the greatest ways to interact with an older individual, whether it's a, a loved one or not, is to sit down and record their history, listen to their life review, 
ask them about their experiences and how they were able to to adapt over time. It's not only therapeutic for the person telling the story, but for the listener. And it allows us to take an eyewitness to history and, and bring it into our own lives. There are some great questions in life, like if you ask a self-made millionaire how he earned his first dollar, you know, wow, it lights up. I loved your question about, please tell me about your most precious memory. That That is a jewel. Yes. This, this was an amazing experience that happened one afternoon. Uh, a woman who had, had uh, was brought to see me for an evaluation, and I should add that I, I work as the psychiatrist at a large long-term care institution in Miami. We actually have on grounds the largest nursing home. And I work in the clinic seeing day in, day out residents and indiv- older individuals from the community to do assessments for memory and depression and whatnot. And uh, a large percentage of the people I see, including the, the woman that I'll describe here, are suffering from memory loss and agitation or other behavioral disturbances. So they brought. she was in the hall outside my office, and she was crying out and saying, why am I here? Who is this doctor? What's this all about? And was quite distressed. And I brought her into the office. And when I began speaking with her, she calmed down and began to talk about the past. She clearly had had pronounced memory impairment. And so I asked her, I said, tell me, what is one of your most precious memories? Tell me something about yourself that's so meaningful. And she said, oh, doctor, I once danced with Fred Astaire. And I, I said, tell me, what is, tell me what this is about. And she described how she and her husband had a very close relationship with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and spent lots of time with them. And, and this is where she came to dance with him. And I witnessed this transformation as she told me the story. She was calmer. She was confident. She was engaged with the, with the conversation. It was, it was a tremendous change. And I said to her, you have to tell me, what was it like to dance with Fred Astaire? And she said, oh, doctor, it was heaven. It was such a moving moment that when I told the nursing staff about this, everyone gathered around her, and I saw this. I continued to see this amazing transformation. I realized that here is a woman who went from being agitated and confused and unhappy, a picture of, of old age that we tend to fear and we tend to medicate, and with some attention and a reconnecting with her past, she was a different person with, within the course of, of an hour. And it just is a reminder to me that we have to try to look behind the mask at times and find these sparks of people that are still there and cultivate them and and the enormous difference it can make, not only for the person, but I was transformed too by listening to this. And with her, you could even give her a CD of Fred Astaire singing and uh, probably get ongoing (laughs) benefits from it. Well, that's true. When you think about it, for the person who, if someone would work with her and say, well, what can I do with this woman? That would be a wonderful thing to play music, look at photographs. You know, she couldn't dance, but you could approximate that great, creatively. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's true. This, these are how we can make connections to people and find ways to interact with them, even when they face memory loss. So the process of reminiscence for the lower functioning people may be pulling out something like this. For the higher functioning people, it's getting a perspective and making sense of everything that uh, has happened in their life. It's true, and it can be even more powerful. I encourage everyone to spend time listening to their elders and listening to their stories. It sends a very clear message that we value them, and everyone needs to feel valued, regardless of what you've done in your life. 
and everyone wants to have a sense of connection uh, with those coming both before and after them, and, and reminiscence or life review is, is one way to do that. And I have to say, frankly, it is one of the most rewarding aspects of the work I do, to sit with someone and really hear their story and understand who is this person in front of me, not just the disease state that I've been asked to evaluate, but who is the person. And understanding that context allows us to intervene in the most effective way. And it allows us to form bonds not only with the person but with the family because it's those ongoing relationships which are most healing. And I say that as a doctor who encounters the most impaired elderly individuals and who is asked often to simply look at, at using a medication. And yet I find that that's just not sufficient. And it doesn't always get me where I need to, to be with the patient. As I was reading How We Age and trying to say what is especially effective about the work you do, one of the things was that you realized that it was developing a sense of trust and that that sense of trust takes time. It's true. Uh, one of the findings from studies of, of cognitive abilities in late life is that memory processing speed and general cognitive speed does tend to slow down a little bit. In fact, if you actually do neuropsychological tests on older individuals, you'll find that they take longer to read and assimilate certain passages. But what's fascinating is at the same time that that process takes longer, the retention and the understanding is often greater. And so this is where the investment in time in listening to someone and interacting with them pays off doubly. And for a generation that is often very skeptical of psychiatry and psychology and talk therapy in particular, I find that when they're exposed to it, they embrace it and often can make greater change than you'd even see in younger individuals. And I tell the story of a 96-year-old man with whom we've worked for many years with a history of recurrent depression, marital issues, physical disability. You would look at him and you'd realize he represents, from one angle, all of the fears of aging that we have. And yet, with our work with him, he was able to come to us and say, I have to tell you my life has been turned around. This is at 96 years old because he was able to make some realizations in talk therapy that transformed the way he thought about his life, it improved the relationship with his wife and with his with his family, and it sends the signal that it's never too late to make change, sometimes even profound change, but we rarely think about that. We tend to think of individuals as uh, rigidified and unable to make change, and it's simply not true. My experience in, in working with nursing homes, I initially went in and thought, oh, their generation isn't going to, to trust uh, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and I found that uh, they were often so starved for attention or somebody who actually sat down with them and gave them total attention for a, a lengthy period of time. Uh, I very rarely got anybody just saying, go away. It's true. I found the same thing. And it, it's almost painful at times to see how, how uh, dearly someone values those interactions and then consider how often they're just not provided. 
because everyone needs those connections. But one thing that I've learned clearly is that the needs and desires and passions we have earlier in life, uh, we still have when, when we're older. It might be different in certain respects, but we still feel them. And it's very sad when someone simply doesn't have the opportunities to still gratify uh, those needs. And I think one of the other things that makes you so effective, you quoted Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel several times. Yeah. He says things like, just to be is a blessing, just to live is holy. And it's it's easy to get discouraged in a nursing home, but when you have those kind of beliefs and attitudes toward people, uh, it changes your perspective. It does change your perspective. I think about this often because it's, it's frequent that I'll, I will encounter a situation that, that even to my eyes as a geriatric psychiatrist for now 15 years, that seem overwhelming. Individuals who have just so many things that have gone wrong and they've given up that it's unclear what to do. And you really fall back that you're sitting with someone in their presence and not certain where to go. And I realize at those points that I, I can I can give up I can take a very pessimistic approach, but to me that's just it's unacceptable as a physician and as a human being at the same time, because we never know what the future will bring. And as I describe over and over again in the books or the stories, that sometimes our efforts pay off in the end, and even when when perhaps they don't, there are key lessons that we need to learn, and we need to send a very clear message to ourselves and, and to our children and other parts of society that we value people simply because of their presence. And if anything, this has been taught to me by the Holocaust survivors I work with because these are individuals who were so devalued and it came from an era where when there was no value placed on human life mm-hmm. whatsoever, quite the opposite. And I think we have such a responsibility to that generation in particular to say that that's simply an unacceptable approach. And being in Miami, there's a concentration of Holocaust survivors. Yes, so actually one of the largest Holocaust survivor communities in in the country is in Miami, and I interact with them every single day here. In addition to World War II veterans, individuals of what we call this greatest generation, it's really an honor to work with them and I emphasize that we have not only the obligation, but also the opportunity to remain vitally involved with them and still reap all the benefits and the inspiration of this generation before it passes on. And I think another thing that you do that makes you so effective is you you never give up. That's true. That's true. I just can, cannot imagine ever not persisting in certain situations. And I've seen time and time again that it makes a difference. One thing I read that really crystallized this in my mind was a piece by an author named Jay Neugeborn. And he has written a lot about mental illness, in particular because he has a brother, Robert, who suffers from chronic schizophrenia. And he has been his brother's caregiver for their most of their lives, and now that they're both uh, adults. And he writes about how his brother had finally been stabilized after so many years on one of the newer antipsychotic medications and was doing beautifully. And one day he got a call from his brother who was screaming and yelling and having a breakdown. And the brother discovered that 
the social worker who had had such an effective connection with his brother had left. And he asked this fascinating question. He said, how is it that this medication that works so beautifully on one day stopped working the next? And what he <laughs> suggests is that the key ingredient, even more so than the medication, is this relationship. And a relationship where a person basically says, I will be with you every step along the way. I'm not going to give up. I was very inspired by that. And I realized that that's our obligation when we sign on to be a doctor or really any any type of clinician, that if there's anything we take an oath for, it's that, to not only try to heal, but to persist and not to give up. And one of the research validations for that comes from George Viant, who had the classic longitudinal study, and one of his conclusions was good relationships are more important in determining happiness than events. It's really remarkable from this study. Uh, it's called the Harvard Study on Adult Development. It, it now incorporates actually two other longitudinal data sets that were all started roughly in the, in the late 20s and early 30s. Uh, these are individuals who were incorporated into longitudinal studies when they were in their early 20s. They actually were college students. One group was from Harvard University. Uh, we actually learned much later that one of the original subjects was John F. Kennedy. Wow. And every year, they would have a detailed history taken. They had a regular physical examination. There is a treasure trove of data on these individuals who are now in their 80s. And George Valiant is a psychiatrist at Harvard, now runs the study, and he's done so for several decades. And so he says, if you look at this data, he pulls out what are some of the conclusions we can make about what helps to have a good old age, what helps for what we call successful aging. And what's so fascinating is that these are points of wisdom that in some ways we've known all along, but now we have hard, fast data backing them up. And one of the things he says very clearly is that the relationships we have are more important than the events in our life, that these relationships are so fundamental to aging well that income is not the factor, having good things happen to you is not as important, it's those connections. And I think we, we all can believe that. But here it is, we have uh, 60 years of, of data to really back that up. Wonderful validation. We're talking with Dr. Mark Agronin, who is Medical Director for Mental Health and Clinical Research at the Miami Jewish Health Systems, and as you mentioned, the largest nursing home in the country? Uh, well, largest in the southeastern United States, and certainly one of the largest in the country. And your newest book is How We Age, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Growing Old, a very readable book and fascinating book. Uh, you've also written a book on how to do therapy, namely therapy with older clients, and psychiatric textbooks such as Principles and Practice of Geriatric Psychiatry. Yes, I do a lot of writing in various topics of mental health late in life, trying to really spread the word about the availability and the knowledge base we have for effective therapies late in life. Uh, How We Age is written instead of for professionals, mainly for a general public, and really focuses on the stories to tell what aging is about and the experiences people have. And 
stories are how we really learn things the best and and what sticks with us. So I think that's even more valuable than just an explanation of stages or something like that. Sure. I, I was even thinking that for me, my the most wonderful memories I have of my own grandparents and great-grandparents are their stories and the time spent with them hearing about their lives. It's interesting to look at what stories survive in a family. And sometimes it can be a tiny story that was told to us, but it, it sends a very powerful message. I had a uh, interesting experience uh, when I recently gave a talk on the book that a number of people came up to me afterwards and they started talking about their grandparents and the stories of their grandparents and their connections with them. And it's it's interesting because when you think about all the time you might spend with a grandparent, what you remember are, might be boiled down to one or two stories mm-hmm. and that, that crystallize something about them or something about the family or some key message from them. And for me, the book was all about uh, putting into uh, taking these stories, which which are so powerful, uh, to illustrate the, the points that I wanted to make about the aging process. And I think a lot of what happens in therapy is we get people to tell their story, and then we kind of feed it back to them. You know, in the context of is, is this what I heard? You know, sure. But we put a little different frame on it, a little more positive, optimistic frame on it, and oftentimes they'll accept that, and the next time they tell their story, it's with that a little more optimism, a little more positive spin to it. It's true, and that's one way in which the therapy can can be so effective. If you even look at the way that we, we form memories, the way memories are stored, we used to envision it almost like you'd you'd cut a channel in a rock that this mm-hmm. is a a permanent the memory is permanent and and fixed and yet what we know is when you conjure up a memory from the past uh, i describe it almost like a gel that softens and it's it's laid down again but it changes a little bit this can be sometimes be helpful for traumatic memories because in the retelling of it over and over again you can sometimes pull away some of the very painful emotions with them. And we've all had this experience, something that was a very frightening event or at one point in time. The more we think about it and tell it, it becomes less frightening over time. Uh, but it also, as you state, it can change in ways that we can integrate it with other memories and think about maybe more of a positive spin on it that can give us this greater sense of whether you call it integrity or meaning or wholeness later in life, but certainly uh, a feeling that only increases the sense of well-being we have as we get older. And I do want to mention your website, which is markagronin.com. That's M-A-R-C-A-G-R-O-N-I-N.com. Again, M-A-R-C-A-G-R-O-N-I-N.com, which includes a, a blog. So yes, I have. ongoing information. Yes, I have on the website some excerpts from the book, reviews of the book, I include a list of what I call top 10 tips on aging well, which is pulled from the book, and a link to a blog I have on at the Psychology Today website on aging. Because I find it so fascinating, I'd like to take you back to the course you took with Eric Erickson. And with the eighth stage, integrity versus despair, here he was starting to get problems with dementia 
and it was the help of his wife and friends that helped him maintain integrity despite that. Sure. When you think about it, if when you meet an older person who has memory impairment, it's not always clear, especially if the person is still verbal and they still have good social skills. And for the average person not knowing a lot about what dementia means or memory impairment, it, it can be easy to be fooled in, in one sense. Uh, lots of individuals in the community have other people sometimes to help cover up for them as well. This can be positive in that it, it might help preserve someone's dignity, but it can be a problem if we overestimate what someone can do. Now, when I met Eric Erickson, I was around 19 at the time, and I knew him as a very, very famous person. So it was almost a sense that no matter what he said or did, I took this as these are the words <laughs> of a master. That's almost a little bit of, you know, when, when you, if you meet a king or someone like that, they can move their hand in one little direction, and you take this as a, as a great sign. And I, I, I did not have an understanding of the fact that he was very quiet and had very little to say was a reflection of the, his own changes in memory. And I also didn't fully understand the struggle that his wife Joan was going through because, as you can imagine, if your husband is, is, a, is a famous man, brilliant man, who is known for the wisdom of his writings and his talks, and suddenly, because of uh, memory issues, he's no longer able to express that. It's very, very frustrating. And I know she did her very best to prop him up. It's also somewhat ironic that in the eighth stage that he writes about, because of his memory impairment, it seemed more difficult for him, at least on an intellectual level, to have a sense of integrity. And there was quite a, a degree of despair felt by his wife. And she even talks about what she calls a ninth stage, which is a time of despair where we were unable to really overcome these changes. So to me, it, it provided such a context for thinking about aging and thinking about the life cycle and really realizing at the end that uh, for even someone in Erickson's position, he was able to have some meaning and vitality with the help of people around him. Nowadays, with certain medications we have and perhaps with different workup, it could have been enhanced. It's, it's hard to know. It's hard to go back in time to, 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 to say that. But I have to say, regardless, even if someone at the time had told me exactly what was going on with him, it didn't lessen my respect for him. It didn't lessen the dignity mm -hmm. which he had at all. He had such a marvelous career. He was, he was such an amazing individual that that value wouldn't change simply because he was going through, unfortunately, a common ailment of, of old age. And you saw Joan Erickson's ninth stage as rather disappointing because it was so pessimistic. I think that her struggle, the final book that they have called The Life Cycle Completed, at the time it was published, it, it's, it's likely that, that Joan Erickson had, had written the additional information on what she called the ninth stage. And it seemed to really reflect her own experiences where, where despair seemed to be in attendance, that individuals in this stage are so overwhelmed. And it's true that for some individuals that that is the experience uh, at the end of life. So I have to admit that I, I have a reaction against that because I want to make certain that the potential is also introduced, that even as individuals are facing that despair, that we don't simply give up and, and say that despair defines the human condition when we have the ability to make a change with it. And it's a point I make often that we can't cure aging, but 
for many of the uh, challenges people face in late life, whether it's depression or isolation or loneliness, we can do something about each one of those. It's not a matter of can we, it's a matter of will we do something. And then, ironically, you later saw Eric Erickson as a patient in a nursing home. Well, what happened was he had come into the hospital once where I was actually working. This is a number of years later. And it was a very painful experience to someone who I really idolized and whose whose thinking and work has shaped my own thinking in so many different ways. And now to see him in, in a very debilitated state, really at the end of his life, it was very painful. But in some ways, it was also, it was very special to, to be present uh, at that time, even in his, in his presence, because I felt in some ways that if I had any role, it would be somewhat of a guardian of his, of his work and of his, of his thinking. And indeed, I feel very good about that, that here it is now, 25 years later, from that experience, and still talking and writing about it and preserving the memory of the importance of, of what he did. I love that inference. And the whole thing with the experience parallels what a lot of people probably felt with Ronald Reagan and, and Nancy Reagan coping with, with his memory losses. I think that's very true. It's interesting how uh, with former President Reagan, he really in some ways was, was hidden away. The public mm-hmm. actually didn't didn't see him in his current condition. And it's understandable from one perspective. Although I think what happens, and I I also make this point with the chapter in Erickson, is that when we hide away people who are facing dementia, and the motivation is is clear and understandable that uh, we want someone to be remembered for what they were when they were not impaired. We fear it it diminishes someone when they're exposed in, in a weakened state. But I do think at the same time we we lose out on the opportunity to still show the value we place on someone even in that state because this is a part of the life cycle. Not that everyone gets or should get Alzheimer's disease, but in you know up until this point in time, it is an ailment that many people face, and we can't hide from it, and we can't send the message that it's okay to hide this away. We have to do the opposite. We have to remain vitally involved and connected with these people. And I make this point all the time to children and grandchildren of individuals in the nursing home that what can make a nursing home a place where people come to live and thrive, not where they come to be isolated and to die, is the involvement of family and loved ones. That can really transform the whole Mm -hmm. experience. So this is clearly why I spent all that time in the book writing about that in particular and, and thinking back on just the enormous influence that Erickson has had on my own work. You know, in my undergraduate courses, they uh, would go on and on about the dignity and worth of the individual, and it was just words. But the way you describe it, it's a lot more than words. It's it's a whole belief and a spirituality that just permeates what you do. Without question. And I found myself, as I was going through writing the book and, and, and wanting to capture my experiences, that in many sense it does become spiritual at times. Because you're with people, uh, especially in a nursing home, who are dying, and especially if you have any involvement with hospice care, and to not feel that sense of spirituality at that point, and I, I would liken that to the way I feel about my grandparents, and I. And this is why in, in the opening of the book I write about 
my connection to my grandfather, who was a physician, and, and because of him, uh, I got involved in, in the field of medicine. And I, I'm certain anyone listening to this, if they think about their own grandparents or great-grandparents, especially individuals if they've passed on, you have a connection to them that goes uh, above and beyond simply the memories. There's part of them which is imbued in us, and this is, I use the term transcendence to describe that sensibility uh, and that importance. And it helps to answer the following question. I, when I gave a talk recently, an, an elderly woman in, in the audience, probably in her 80s, raised her hand and she said, what can I do as an older person to to get younger people to have a better understanding of aging and, and what I'm going through and who I am as a person? I thought it was a, it was a wonderful question. Mm-hmm. And I suggested that, and based on, on my own experiences, with my grandparents, that you have to have confidence in the importance of your presence. That you might not have the, the greatest words, the words of wisdom in your sense to pass down to someone, or you might not be teaching them a life skill that they will take on uh, you know, for the rest of their life. Sometimes just the presence is so important in a story or, or a touch that those connections can leave the deepest of impressions, especially in younger children. In my whole career, this entire book is shaped by the experiences I had with older relatives when I was much younger. Experiences that, at the time, I don't think I could have put into words, and even now at times are difficult to put into words. But it's that presence and that value and connection which makes all the difference. You know, something else I think reinforces it for you is having a Jewish upbringing and background, there's such an emphasis on history and tradition and continuity that it just reinforces all the other things you're saying about the reverence for life. In, in my own upbringing and with my family, there's no question that my own religious tradition had a strong influence. Although I have to say what's so fascinating is Working where I do in Miami, there's such a mixture of religions and cultures here. Mm-hmm. And many of the staff here is Haitian background and, and, and people of very deep faith, a faith which has guided them through the tragic events of, of the last year. And I find it's a, it's a wonderful way to connect with the people they care for. I, I always, it comes to mind, especially when we talk about spirituality, an older man who was in my office in last week, elderly Haitian man in his 80s who has end-stage kidney disease. He's wheelchair-bound. Because of of other disease states, he's very bloated, very uncomfortable. And he said to me, he said, I have to be honest with you, doctor, I'm I'm suffering in many respects. But he also told me he has moments of happiness, and he he attributes this to his faith. And it's, it's wonderful for myself coming from a Jewish tradition, for him coming from a Christian tradition, that on this issue of a sense of faith and spirituality, we can really have a wonderful connection there. And I found it, I found it inspiring for him. It inspired my own religious sensibility, which is a wonderful thing when you can come from different traditions and yet still get inspiration from one another. I want to go back to the stage theorist and geriatric psychiatrist Gene Cohen, who unfortunately died in 2009 at the young age of 65. Tell us about Gene Cohen's theory. Gene Cohen is really one of the founding fathers of 
modern geriatric psychiatry. He came into the field at a time when, as he describes, it was almost like a career suicide even to go into geriatrics. <laughs> it really, really wasn't considered an area that people would want to study. Uh, and so he was, he was a pioneer in the field. And what was so wonderful about Gene is that he saw strengths in older people. He saw the ability for creativity, and he took Erickson's stage theory, which he acknowledged, but he said, as you get older, it's not simply about wrapping things up and coming to conclusions. It's also about being energetic and being creative and doing new things. To me, that's it's such a wonderful perspective because it gives it, it gives hope for all of us that the second half of our life can be a time of growth and development, just like the first half of life. It's such a hopeful approach. And so he talked about what what he called human potential phases, and he gives lots of examples of older individuals who were able to energize their own activities. He talks about creativity and how the mind can increase in creativity and makes the point that, as, as he told me in an interview I had a number of months before he passed away, that many of the great folk artists are in their 80s and 90s, many of whom started their work at that stage in life, uh, at a time when we wouldn't imagine the mind to be as nimble and creative as, as it sometimes can be. And so it's an overlay to Theory of Erickson's others, suggesting that late life is, is a time of such richness and of such potential that it should fill us with even more hope about what that stage of life can be. So is Gene Cohen's theory one that you refer to in your thinking more than Eric Erickson now? Well, I find that I pair them up often, that they both explain certain aspects of the aging process. Although it's true, as I think about the way I like to conceive of late life, and I and I should add that I, I like I love this quote from Thomas Cole, who's a very prominent uh, gerontologist. He talks about how the way we think about old age tends to, as he puts it, constitute its reality. So it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. if we have a positive viewpoint in age. If we, if we if we see it as a time of opportunity, indeed, it does become that way. And 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 Gene Cohen's work speaks right to that issue because up until you could be 101, 106, as he describes certain individuals, to still be growing and creating and vitally involved in life, to me, is, is such a such a wonderful thing. And he talks about what he calls a social portfolio. He makes the point that everyone, as you get older, most people have a financial portfolio, which is a list of our assets. We have insurance. We diversify. We do all these very practical things to make certain that we have enough money to care for ourselves and to leave for our families. And he said, you have to think of the rest of your life in the same way. And the social portfolio is a way of sitting down and taking stock, not of our financial assets, but our personal assets. What do we enjoy doing? What are our strengths? What can we give to other people? And how will that change over time? So if I'm unable to get out and about physically as much, how can I take these assets and, and diversify them to still be active? If I'm, Whether I'm alone or in a group, what are things I can do? And so an example would be someone who's very sociable, who loves to go out and spend time with people, but now 
because of physical changes as they get into their 80s or 90s is less able to do that. Something like the Internet could be a, a new outlet for them or, or going on Skype or on, on the phone or so many different avenues. And by sitting down and sharing this social portfolio with other family and friends, by discussing it, we develop it. And it's, it's again, when you think people do this financially all the time, and so I just love the way he, he took this model and, and gave us a way not only to, to be hopeful about lay life, but actually put it into action. And that's, that's key. And I would say social portfolio ought to include the relationships. And one of the things I try to nudge people to do is that if you don't add new friendships and new relationships, you're going to see friends and family move on or pass on and feel like you're the last one standing. But if you develop some new friendships at every age, then you don't have that problem in your life. It's very true. And to me, the barrier that I see is not the availability of new relationships, it's the attitude towards it. Mm -hmm. In one sense, from a practical sense, people do question if they're going to invest their time and energy in a relationship, they want it to be meaningful. And if your life span is measured in years rather than decades, it's true someone would be more careful and more risk-averse in terms of starting new relationships. But that doesn't have to preclude new friendships and relationships, especially with younger people. And one of the concepts of aging is a pruning back. Well, pruning is actually a very growth-oriented thing. And as we get older, we get clearer about what's important, how we want to spend our time, what relationships are valuable and worth going into more depth, and which ones are superficial and are appropriate for pruning. It, it's very true. In, in my book on therapy, I give the example, it just as, as you state, I remember and where I work is just beautiful gardens and trees here. And I remember coming to work one day and seeing one of the most beautiful trees here completely stripped down of its leaves and of its limbs. And I actually thought it was dying. I thought they were beginning, preparing to cut it down. What I realized is that they had simply pruned back the leaves. And within six months, it had this amazing, majestic crown of leaves on it. And I thought, what a, what a wonderful analogy for mm -hmm. what people also can do in lay life, that you do have to prioritize more. You do have to be more practical but you can see an incredible flowering of opportunity that you wouldn't even imagine. And when you see that happening, it is just amazing and, and inspiring to see. And, and I'm so fortunate to be at a, uh, in a setting where I can see this on a daily basis. We're talking with Dr. Mark Agranen, who's medical director for mental health and clinical research at Miami Jewish Health Systems and author of several books. The one we focused on today is How We Age, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Growing Old. And the website is markagronin.com. That's M-A-R-C-A-G-R-O-N-I-N. One more time, M-A-R-C-A-G-R-O-N-I-N. Dr. Agronin, absolutely fascinating and really appreciate you sharing your wealth of, of stories and experience and expertise. I want to thank you so much for the opportunity. This has been an absolute pleasure. Commentary. Medicine has a financial hierarchy. At the bottom of the hierarchy are family doctors, pediatricians, and psychiatrists. Their average salaries are about a third 
of the average salaries of neurosurgeons and cardiac surgeons. Consequently, it is not surprising that there is a shortage of psychiatrists. Most psychiatrists today focus on diagnosis and medications and leave the psychotherapy to less expensive practitioners. In nursing homes, the house doctor usually takes care of medications for pain, depression, and anxiety, and psychiatrists are just consulted on unusual cases and behavior problems. Dr. Mark Agronin is a role model for what psychiatry should be and can be. Fortunately, his influence spreads far beyond Miami Jewish health systems through his books like How We Age, his books for psychiatrists and psychotherapists, and his presentations at professional conferences. A few decades ago, partly spurred by managed care pressures, brief therapies and solution-focused therapies became popular, and they often were remarkably effective. I personally had a lot of success with solution-focused therapy. There is, however, no brief therapy or solution-focused therapy in geriatrics. It takes time, a lot of listening, developing trust, and contrary to what most people would think, creativity. One of my principles for choosing philosophies, religious beliefs, and therapy principles is to favor optimism and positive views. Thus, I especially like Dr. Gene Cohen's stage theory and Dr. Marka Granin's view of therapy with seniors. My interview with Dr. Granin works at several levels. First, it helps us understand our own aging and view our own aging with a good dose of optimism. Second, it helps us focus on how to relate to our own family and friends who are aging, especially when they are in hospitals and nursing homes. And third, it provides a model and ideas for psychotherapists. What does it take to be a good therapist with people who are old? There's a Yiddish term, mensch, that sums it up. A mensch is a caring person with integrity, values, and character. A therapist who is a mensch takes the time to really listen, care, never give up, and do whatever it takes to help. My role model for a mensch therapist is Dr. Agronin. You are listening to Ageless Lifestyles on webtalkradio.net and permanently archived on agelesslifestyles.com. For information on my books, Defy Aging and 52 Baby Steps to Grow Young, my anti-aging hypnosis CDs, personal coaching, and my keynote and seminar services, just go to notaging.com or drbricky.com, D-R-B-R-I-C-K-E-Y.com. I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions. Send them to radio at agelesslifestyles.com. This is your anti-aging psychologist, Dr. Michael Bricky, thanking you for joining us on our quest to live longer, healthier, and happier.